morning or good evening, depending on how you're reckon time. This is Apologetics.com, and we are challenging thinkers to believe and believers to think and believers to think and thinkers to believe. And I'm your host tonight, slash tomorrow, slash this morning, Daniel Adrian. I'm blessed to be a deacon at Branch of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and this week's episode is sponsored by Branch of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Torrance, California. We may need some coffee in here. Just kidding. Uh, I've got Emma with me. She's very helpful. Uh, Glad to be here on the radio with y'all. Of course, what are we going to talk about tonight? Well, part of that may in part be established by who calls in, and I would like to give that number out now, 888-995-5552. I'll be with you for the hour, and we'll be talking about death. Well, not just death. Resurrection. And why would we speak about resurrection at this time of year? Well, the culture is helpfully kind of talking about it a lot, and you're hearing songs related to it and musical programs and A lot of our church services might be heading in this direction. So why would we talk about resurrection on a show called Apologetics.com? Well, we want to know what role the resurrection has in the faith that we're defending. Remember, apologia, apologia, is defense of the faith, presenting a reasoned defense, a case, if you will, for what we believe— And remember, our mission statement slash motto is challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe, which I think I reversed. I'm famous for that, infamous for that. But in light of that, let's kind of establish the importance of the resurrection to our faith by reading a bit from God's own word. So that's our sole infallible standard. It's our only rule for faith and practice. That's what we believe and what we do. And what we want always to do is to ground what we're talking about and thinking about and certainly what we're sharing in terms of the gospel and the word of God and the truths of scripture, well, from the word of God as directly as possible. So why don't we, if you have your copies of God's word, please turn with me in them now to Romans chapter 4. I helpfully have mine open to it, Romans chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone, and this is Moses, that it was imputed to him, so that this righteousness was credited to him. So actually, let's start in 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. So we know this is perfect. It's straight from the mind of God through the Holy Ghost's ministrations unto Paul. And Paul has just been talking to us about how we get this this faith and what the object of this faith is, and that in, in having Christ and laying hold of Christ with what we might think of as the hands of faith and appropriating him to ourselves, we receive his righteousness. 
And not only do we receive his righteousness, but in what's been known as the sweetest exchange and the greatest transfer in language like this that the church has been using for a long time, particularly starting around 1516, but even going back all the way, I mean, it's right there, right? We just talked about imputation. That's the imputation of all of our guilt, all of our transgressions, all of our sins onto the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of his righteousness being given to us as a free gift, right? It's in faith, it's by faith, it's through faith that we receive Christ and his righteousness, and therefore we are reckoned as righteous. We are declared righteous, and we are viewed as righteous by the Father. God the Father looks at us as if we lived the perfect sinless life of Jesus himself, our Savior. Now, this is the heart of the gospel. Justification has been called the hinge upon which the entire Bible or the entire gospel turns. It's been called the principal cause and chief principle of the Reformation. Remember, we were in these dark, dark times of not knowing the gospel and not knowing how we were to be saved and not having any hope in the world whatsoever, except through false means, which were false assurances provided by a false church in the sense that it had departed from the Word of God. And then this light breaks in. There's a beautiful Latin phrase, post tenebris lux, after darkness, light. It's the light of the gospel. It's the light of God's Word being brought to our hearts. We go ad fontes. We go back to the sources. We go back to not only the original Greek and the original Hebrew, but we go back to the work of just studying scripture itself and saying this, as I said earlier, is our real rule. This is really the rule of faith. And what a rule, right? This is this is the thing we go to. This is the textbook. This is the source book. This is the font or fount, some say, <laughs> of all that we do, right? And so this is what they return to, and this is where we find a true understanding of how we're justified, how we're declared righteous and made righteous by the Lord. And what did our text say? It said that Jesus was raised for our justification. So if Jesus was not raised, we would not be justified. And as a, as a very controversial thinker has said in the past, uh, you can't have resurrection without death. And so as we think through these things today, as we reflect on what church culture broadly and what the world is thinking about in terms of even the symbols of quote-unquote Easter that you may be familiar with, what are they symbolizing? You know, spring, new life, eggs, new life, bunnies, new life, over and over and over, new life. Well, we don't have a new life. We don't have regeneration. We're not born from above if we're not also justified. These things come together, right? When we're united in saving faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive a lot of things in a moment, right? We receive adoption. We're, we're not only reckoned righteous and declared righteous, we're not only imputed Christ's righteousness, which means we're not guilty, and then we receive all this righteousness for things we didn't do, but, but what Jesus did perfectly, we also then receive sonship. We're made sons in the Son. We're adopted. We're adopted at that same moment, and in that same moment— 
We can argue about if there's a logical priority here, but also in a moment, what happens? We're given new life, spiritual life. We're regenerated. We're born from above. And so the culture is talking about these things. You know, we, I was just in the Walmart doing some shopping and you see the, again, the, the bunnies, the eggs, all of this. And these are uh, paganistic symbols of new life. But when the culture gives you an opportunity to declare a core truth of our faith, we want to capitalize on that. Now, some of us disagree with what we do in the worship service regarding these days. Of course, I I would reject all man-made holy days. I only believe in those days instituted by God, which I would say is on an ordinary year, 52 holy days called the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath Sunday. However, I know that many of our audience, many of uh, many of us involved in this ministry, they think, you know, other days are also good. And even in my own church, even in my own churches, my background, this is, this is what we talk about. People at Branch of Hope, this is an ongoing discussion. So I understand that we can charitably disagree on the role of these things in our body life as a church. But what we shouldn't disagree about, what we should never disagree about is we gather together, we assemble on the Lord's Day on a Sunday, quote unquote, uh, because it's the Son's Day, it's the Lord's Day, and we go there to worship Him. And in worshiping Him, we are conformed more to His image. It's a means of grace. It's a way by which God gives us the grace that we need to live the Christian life. We get this through prayer. We get this through Bible reading, yes, but the, of course, the reading of the Word of God in the church and the preaching especially. We get this in singing, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, edifying one another, and of course, singing our praise directly to God. When we come to God, we come and learn these things. And this is where I hope and pray all of you listening are receiving the knowledge of justification, the knowledge of you being made and declared righteous, right? And so from justification comes our sanctification. And our sanctification is us becoming more and more Christ-like. It's that's that conforming, that, that, that process of being ever more conformed to the image of the Father's dear Son, and so, what is this a picture of? But when we think back before God regenerated us, before he made us alive in Christ, before he united us by faith, which is his alone gift, right? He gives it to us alone. What were we like before? Well, we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were spiritually dead. We did not will to do the good. We did not seek God. We didn't seek that which is good. Not even one of us. And so we were brought to life by the powerful working of the Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And in doing that, we are brought to life spiritually. We're not only brought to life, we're, the imagery over and over and over throughout the Bible, right? It's so rich, right? We're talking about darkness and light earlier. You're translated from the kingdom of darkness. You're taken out of it, and you're brought into the kingdom of light. You're brought into Christ's own kingdom. So when you're made a son, you're also made a subject of the king, King Jesus, who's ruling and reigning right now. But before King Jesus began ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand, where he is even now seated, and he's making ever-present intercession on your behalf, Christian, he's your priest king, and he's your perfect prophet. So he's declaring the word of God to you in his church, 
through his ministers. He's offering up your praises as if they were his own. He's making them acceptable, and he's offering up your prayers by the Spirit to the Father in his priestly role. And of course, he's ruling and reigning. He's subduing all of his enemies and making all of his enemies, each and every one of them, his footstool. And he's doing that in his, again, Latin word, sessio, his sessio, which is his session, his sitting at the right hand of the Father. But before that, believer, he had to go to the cross. There's an expression that we love, some of us very much, and I certainly do, which is there's no crown without a cross. And so in order to get that crown, in order for his human nature to be to be crowned king, a part of that, an extremely critical part of that was him dying, dying and raising again, rising, yes, by his own power, but being raised by the Spirit. And he, he's the only one who had authority to lay his life down and to take it up again. But as with all works of God, this is a Trinitarian work. The Father sends him to do this. He does this. After living a perfect, sinless life, he dies in our stead on the Father's behest, and it's the power of the Spirit by which he does all these things, including rising again. And it's by rising again that we have reset all of human history. If you want a formal cause for Western civilization, it would be all of the events of Christ's life. It would be his birth. It would be what I keep talking about and stressing, which is the act of obedience of Jesus, his perfect, sinless life. And it would, of course, include the passive obedience of Jesus, which is from passion. It's not that he's passive, <laughs> but it's that he submits to the worst death imaginable, the most scandalous death imaginable. But it's by that very scandal of the cross that he's placarded across the universe and has victory over all of his enemies. The power of the victory that Jesus is even now outworking in providence was secured. When he said it is finished, to tell us die, when he said that it's finished on the cross, it was finished. He does not need to add to his work in order to secure the purpose of the plan of the Lord, of Jehovah. We have a plan in place. We're not a people without a plan. It's God's plan. Now, we're not given every particular of the plan, but what we know is that the power needed for that plan has never been lacking, and that Jesus finished the work of salvation, and now the Holy Ghost is applying that work to every individual who comes to faith. And we know from the Great Commission that it won't only be individuals, but rather nations will be discipled and be taught whatsoever Jesus has commanded them. And not only that, but they'll be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Nations, not just individuals. And of course, when we read about the kingship of Christ, we see he's the king of nations. He's Messiah the Prince. He is the ruler of the nations. And so, of course, it would make sense that when we look at Psalm 2, and it's a and the Lord Je- and the Lord Jesus is told to ask of the Father to receive his inheritance, and his his inheritance is the world and all the nations, that of course Jesus did ask. And Jesus is even now bringing in all of his elect in all the world. 
And of course, the power of the gospel is such that it's not only sufficient for individual transformation and life, but for the transformation of the world. And of course, we know that Jesus, from multiple places, John 3.16 being a great place to start, but all through the New Testament, we see Jesus as the Savior of the world. He's reconciling all things to himself. We're given a ministry of reconciliation, and he's reconciling all things. So when we look back at the Great Commission, we remember that he says, Lo, I am with you always, right? I'm I'm with you forever. And he says, All authority in heaven and in earth, on heaven, (laughs) on earth and in heaven, you might know it better, by all authority is given to him. He has all of it. It was given to him, of course, in his humanity. As the second person of the Trinity, he's always had it. He never lacked power, right? It's the human nature that becomes exalted after being humiliated. And isn't that a picture of the death and resurrection we're talking about? This humiliation in the incarnation that culminates in this exaltation, which results in the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly united, without any confusion, to the divine nature, ruling and reigning next to his Father. And that is a reason for hope. It's not only the empty tomb, it's what Christ ascends to the Father to do, right? This ever-present work of ruling and reigning, of being the perfect king, priest, and prophet for his people. And not only for his people, but to the world, so we, we think about the Great Commission, we know that it's guaranteed for success by Jesus himself, and we know the extent of that, and all of this is flowing from this resurrection power. And we see a picture of this resurrection power that oftentimes we don't hear discussed a lot, and that's that there were resurrections at the time of the resurrection. Graves opened at the time of Christ's death, before his own resurrection for signifying his own resurrection. And this is another illustration that this is going to be the power that resurrects the world. And what do I mean by that? All of the dead will rise. It's called the general resurrection. Not only the dead in Christ, not only the righteous, but the unrighteous. And so when we're doing apologetics, when we're talking about our faith, we're the only people By God's grace, and it's because he's revealed it in his word graciously, we're the only people who have an answer for death. Now, I often talk about, and I've talked about on this program before, that we're the only ones with an answer for suffering. Some people will tell you they have a good life, and they don't really have much suffering, and the suffering they have is light and trivial, and they're happy, and so they don't need an answer for the sufferings that they experience. They just know, I don't know, what would they claim, that it's part of life or something, or that it maybe even has taught them lessons. Who knows? But they'll try to give you some kind of explanation as to why they have a reason for their own suffering. But what no one can give you a reason for is why we die. And when someone comes, even that person with that false confidence and false assurance, comes to the end of their life— the end of his or her life. What comfort do they have? What can they hold on to? What, they, what can they cling to? And even more 
controversially, and I'm not trying to be controversial, but what would the Christian have without the guarantee of the resurrection? What would the Christian have without the promise that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? This is why the early church and even into the Reformation, which I alluded to earlier, 1500s and 1600s, we had a burden as a church to put down this idea of soul sleep, to put it to sleep, to put it to bed, if you'll pardon the pun. We wanted to get rid of this idea that you were suke panachia, soul sleep. This, this idea that when you die, you just sleep. Well, for the Christian, death has to be a rejoining, a union, a reunion to, uh, from us to our maker. That's what death has to be. And so what we call the intermediate state, as we're talking about death here, and there is a separation body from soul. Your soul doesn't rise immediately to be with God. We know that. That intermediate state, that is your soul enjoying what will come and what will be consummated, what will be completed in the eschaton, in the final estate, which is what we should all be longing for. And this is the hope that we give the dying world. And the world is dying. And what did, what did that controversial thinker say who was in no way a Christian? There can be no resurrection without death. And so when we hold out the gospel, which is life, and Christ, who he, who he himself is not only the gospel, he himself is not only the gospel, but life, when we hold him forth, we're showing his ultimate victory over death in the proclamation of the gospel, in the sharing of the truths of Scripture. If you want to talk to me about any of this, the number again is 888-995-5552. But what we're getting at when we speak of these things is eternal reality, right? Death is temporary. What do I mean by that? Because there will be a time with no more death. Adam did not face death until the fall. Adam was not created to die. Death is disordered. Death is contrary to the order of God, the great orderer of all things. God did not make a dying world. God superintends a dying world for his own glory. And what does he bring from death but life? So you have a dying world that becomes a life-filled planet full of those of us who've been given new life in Christ who is himself the life and by the power of the gospel of life, which are the words of life. And what flows from Christ? Streams of living water. And this living water is the water that will slake, which will satiate, which will satisfy, which will quench our thirst. And what would we thirst after more than Christ who is life himself? So when we speak of the imperative for life and living, and we say we're a pro-life people in the absolute strongest sense, we're really saying we're a pro-Christ people because he is the way, the truth and the life, and no one cometh to the Father but by him. And so, as we think through these things together, what we're getting at is, yes, we have to tell people about death. We have to confront death. And sin 
is what brought forth death. And death itself is a consequence of sin. And that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at how death came in and how Christ is the life. And he rolls away our own spiritual tombs and calls us forth as if we ourselves were Lazarus laying there, rotting, decaying, and he calls us forth. And he says he is the resurrection. Remember, he's the life, but he says himself he's the resurrection. So we want to be thinking about how we can lead people to spiritual truths and realities uh, by looking at physical things that even, even some of the hardiest among us, even some of the most resilient among us, we, we tremble to look at. I mean, death is a horrible enemy. And in fact, it's the last enemy to be defeated. But it is a conquered foe. Remember, all of the victory was secured at the cross and through the resurrection. But it is a dreadful enemy. And this is why we do mourn. It's not that Christians don't mourn. It's that we do not mourn as those without hope. Because, of course, Christ, the living one, the life-giving spirit, he is our hope. He alone Right? It's in Christ alone that we have the ability to even face the prospect of death. And so in thinking through our apologetic mission and task and thinking about how we want to share the truths of the Word of God with not only Los Angeles but the entire world, we need to bring these things to bear on even the gravest enemy of everything living, which is the fact that we die. Dying we shall die. But dying we shall not die if we are in Christ, our life. And that is our hope. He is our eschatological hope. He is our hope for the last things, which the last things include not only the end of all of history and the the resolution and restitution of all things, but also our own personal ends, which we're talking about in terms of death being conquered. So... You're listening to Apologetics.com, and I look forward to hearing from anyone who wants to call in at 888-995-5552, and I'll catch you on the other side of the break, Lord willing. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. This is John MacArthur welcoming you to Portraits of Grace. Affection for Jesus Christ is the most identifiable characteristic of true Christians. That's because believing in Him and loving Him are inseparable. Jesus said, The Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed. 
To his antagonists, Jesus declared, if God were your father, you would love me. Anyone who truly loves God will love Christ, and that love will be reflected in their obedience to his commandments. Many people are confused about what it means to be a Christian, but you have the privilege of clarifying the issue by loving Christ, loving him deeply, and demonstrating your love by obeying his word. May God bless you richly as you pursue that goal today. This is John MacArthur hoping you'll join me again for Portraits of Grace. When you awaken in the morning, what is the first decision you must make? Hi, I'm Chuck Swindoll. No, it's not whether to get up or what you're going to have for breakfast. It's what kind of attitude would you choose to face that day with? And I'm convinced our best attitudes emerge out of a clear understanding of our own identity and a deep sense of God's purpose for our lives. That sort of God-honoring attitude encourages us to press on, to focus on the goal, to respond in remarkable ways to life's most extreme tests and circumstances. So here's a good plan. Tomorrow morning, plan early on a good attitude. Pastor and teacher Chuck Swindoll. Visit Insight for Living's website at insight.org. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Welcome back to Apologetics.com, where we are continuing to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. I'm Daniel Adrian, and this is, yet again, the week that Branch of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Torrance, California, brings you. And a quick reminder, we are 100% listener-supported, unless if something's changed and they haven't told me yet, (laughs) but we are also dependent on you. And if you would like to contribute to this ministry in whatever way that you can, whether that be financially or by praying for us, certainly reach out to us through our website. We have a Facebook, uh, which I'm not live streaming to right now, and I apologize for that, everyone. Uh, (laughs) But we have many things in place, uh, ways for you to get involved. And of course, one of the ways you can get involved right now is you can call and be a participant in the show. You could be a call-in guest, uh, unlike all of my guests who would not, could not, were not enabled to be here tonight. 888-995-5552. All right. So we were talking about Jesus as the life. And if you look at John 5 with me, you look at verse 26 in your copies of God's word, you will see here now the word of the Lord, Jesus himself saying, for as the father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the son to have life in himself and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. 
thus far the reading of God's holy word, which again is perfect, infallible, inerrant. It's holy. It's what we need to know. It's what we need for our own lives. And it's what we use in apologetics. Now, you can't always just simply read scripture to the unbeliever, but what you're saying to the unbeliever should be utterly in conformity to, to the best of your ability to the best that the Holy Ghost enables you to with the Word of God, utter conformity to the Word of God. And so we say, we, we were talking about earlier, I was mentioning to y'all that there's a general resurrection. Well, here we see Jesus himself saying it. And not only that, but all in the graves will hear the voices, will hear his voice, and will hear the voice of the Lord. We'll hear that final summoning at the end to come forth and some who are good, which remember, we're raised, or he, he was raised for our justification. We're raised in him and justified in him. Where does that goodness come from? Now, obviously, we have to be holy. We have to be perfect. We have to do all these things that we can't do. We're, we're utterly ina- unable to do, incapable of doing. So we're utterly reliant on God's grace. It's by grace alone that we seek to live the Christian life. But our righteousness is as filthy rags. So the perfect righteousness that will have anyone stand, it's my only hope on Judgment Day, is, of course, Christ's perfect righteousness. That We will be clothed in the white, spotless robe of his righteousness. We talked about that in the first segment as part of imputation, that crediting of Christ's own personal holiness to you as if you did all of those good things. Not only did you not do anything wrong, not only is it as if you yourself had a sinless, perfect life, but that that sinlessness and that perfection extended to all the things you did do. That's what's reckoned to you. That's what's credited to you. That's what's imputed to you. Again, as if it were your very own. And of course, that comes extra nos, extra nos, that comes outside of us. That's an alien righteousness, not an extraterrestrial righteousness, but a, a righteousness that's not our own. And it's because we're justified, it's because Christ was raised for our justification that we are made holy, that we do live, to use an older way of saying this, holily. We do live in such a way where we seek to be pleasing to God and to live a life in conformity to what he has taught us. Remember, the the Holy Ghost is our inward teacher. He instructs us. He applies the truths of the word of the Lord to us. His own word, the words he inspired, he writes, as it were, on our souls and our very hearts. And he gives us the grace. He gives us what we need in order to live that life, that pleasing life. And this life that we're talking about is the antidote to death. And aren't we now in such a grim culture of death? Forget about other times in history. Think only now of what we're living in now. We have war. We have pestilence. We have all sorts of death and ways of dying Everywhere. Now we're talking about physical death again. But what do we want to do? We want to take the physical and use it to get to the spiritual. This is what Jesus himself does with the woman at the well. Water to living water, which we also talked about. She wanted physical water. He talks to her about living water. 
spiritual water, immaterial water, the waters of life, which only he can give. And what do we see in heaven at the end of all things? We see the waters of life. So the waters of life that were, as it were, in a figure in the garden, we see at the end of all things, after everything's been judged, after this great resurrection of the righteous to their reward be only merited by Christ alone, and the wicked to their just recompense, their just rewards, which is everything that I deserve, everything that I as a hell-deserving sinner personally deserve, they suffer the consequences for. Why don't I? Why don't you? I pray, Christian, you're a true believer. Why don't you? Because Jesus took our hell. Jesus took all of the sting and all of the curse out of death and delivered all of his people from it. And oh, 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 yay, uh uh-huh, do what I pray, would to God that that hell would be empty. Would to God that not one of you, not anyone who ever hears this, would ever suffer the consequences that I so richly deserve and that you so richly deserve for your sins. My eye for mine and you for yours. I don't want that for you. I want the Lord Jesus Christ to have paid your penalty and your debt in full. This is what makes us Christians. It's that Our sins are atoned for. One thing that I was told by a mentor and a minister and a friend, a question that I've used often and I should probably use more, and this is going to be very helpful for you in apologetic encounters. Ask someone when the time is right, when you've discerned that this question will have meaning to them, when you're you're led to do this, be prayerful always when you speak to unbelievers or believers, when you speak at all. But ask them what they're going to do with their sin. I remember when I was thinking through the great and weighty matters of faith that uh, we can so often take for granted, I was asked a, a very startling question, which was whether or not Jesus had died for those burning in hell right now. And I really had to think about that. I had to rethink some things. I was driven to the scriptures to explore that. And I don't know what that person who told me that, who asked me that question, what feels like so long ago in a parking lot under a street light. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know what they really intended by it. I have an idea. But when you can hit someone with the right question, I don't know if I don't know to this day if this person knows what an impact that question had on me. But if you can ask a, a sinner what they're going to do about their sin, what they're going to do with their sin. What, how, how is their sin going to be dealt with? I mean, this is what we do oftentimes in sharing the gospel with people out in public, right? We show them that they need a savior. And why do they need a savior? Because they're a sinner. And how do they come to know that they're a sinner? Because we live in a culture that celebrates sin, that denies sin, that on the one hand, out of one side of its mouth says there is no sin, and out of the other side, it's turning what are sins, what the Lord clearly teaches our sins, into virtues. We are trying to transmogrify, transmute some alchemical, magical, sorceress process by which we make vice into virtue. And then we wonder why the Lord's hand is not slack in correcting us. 
We wonder why the hand of judgment, the hand of temporal judgment, the hand of correction, the hand of chastening, the hand of discipline comes upon us and is applied to us. We dare wonder why. Well, I would say to you, Christian, that as this warrior for life, as one in Jesus, who is the life himself, we must crusade, we must fight, we must take the battle for life against an ever-encroaching culture and society and civilization, I'd say anti-civilization, of death. Because, of course, what is a civilization except something you can live in? And so if you make death a value, a virtue, a right to death, what? A right to death? Death is the enemy. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying the fountain of youth was good. Uh, again, you can take speaking of the fountain of youth and say, well, Christ is actually the fountain of life. It's, it's f the fountains of blood in which we're washed and made alive that flow from his side. Yes, 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 yes. That youth I'll take. But, but there's a sense in which even the foolish notion of the fountain of life, I mean, fountain of youth, also known as the fountain of life, is good, is better than saying, well, death is, we have a right to die. If you say you have a right to die, then you're saying blasphemously that you have authority to take your own life and pick it up and lay it down, which is what Christ said in Christ alone. The human nature of Christ alone is the only man, the God-man mediator, Again, perfectly united to his divine nature, without confusion, no confounding, one person. He's the only one who can say that, because he's the only one who has that authority and that power. And so, if we look back at John 5, if your Bible is still open, what do we see? But we see, if we jump down to verse 30, sorry, I thought I had it right here. Ah, verse 39, I'm going to connect this to what we were talking about with the scriptures. Jesus himself, again, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. What? One more time. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. All of you that he's speaking to are not coming to him. And he's their only hope for life. And that is a world that we can relate to. That's a, an anti-civilization, pseudo-civilization, you know, posing itself as a civilization that we can relate to. They do not come to Jesus for life. Now, if we don't go out and offer them life and share life with them, well, then that's on us. Their blood is on our heads. We are not, we are not, we are not guilt-free if we're not doing the tasks, the services, the worshiping that has been commanded and required of us. The Christian life is not a spectator sport. The Christian life's not a sport, but you get the analogy. You have to be out there. It's a race that we're running. Yes, we're individually running. I can't run the race for you, and you can't run the race for me. But we're all running together, and we're all pressing onward to a goal.
And what do we get at the end of that? If the Lord brings us home, because of course he's the one giving us any energy. I mean, he's giving us the very breath we need in order to run this race. But what do we receive at the end? A crown of life. There it is again. It's all about life with us. And when when death comes near and death stalks and death encroaches, a lot of us had a lot of healthy fear of death just recently. Some of us even now are experiencing that in Eastern Europe. An extremely healthy fear of physical death. When death stalks us, as it were, as the great predator that will devour our bodies, that's an opportunity for us to show the only hope the only antidote, the only cure for death. So before I run out of all time, let's go back to Genesis. I love Genesis. We all should. It's at the beginning for the reason. The reason that it is, in fact, a word meaning beginning. That's what Genesis means. Beginning, beginnings. And if we go to Genesis and we see all of chapter one, where God is creating, what we see is light and life. We're seeing all of this light and life coming into being out of nothing, ex nihilo. It's by divine fiat, meaning it's by his creative word that all these things are happening. That's what we're seeing all through Genesis one. And we see the creation of man and man is made into a living being. If you look at verse 27, so God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Man and then the woman as his help me are created and made in the image and likeness of God. And of course, God is life and is the source of all life. And so we are living souls. We're living creatures and we're made and we have life. So where is all this death coming from? And why is it that dust to dust, ashes to ashes is a, is a rendition, a liturgical rendition of Scripture, but to the ashes we return? Why? Why does that happen? Well, and a lot of you will know, but we want to ground everything we do in the Word of God. Chapter 2. First, look at verse 7, a more detailed account of the formation of man. This is why dust of the ground. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. We have the breath of life in us, breathed into us by the giver of all life himself. And it's that combined with a body, a good body that he made for us, formed from the dust of the ground, that makes us a living soul. So again, I said, what about, you know, it's um, Daniel and Daniel, you might, you might be asking Daniel, what about the death part? Well, the prohibition is in verse 17. What we weren't supposed to do, what we all did in Adam, we all did it. Adam did it. And in him, we all fell. We were, as it were, as the Bible says, in his loins. We all come from him. We all did this. So never let someone tell you, oh, if I'd been in the garden, I wouldn't have done it. We all come from him. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. 
For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Dying ye shall die. Well, Adam and Eve, Eve first, ate of the fruit, and they didn't die. Oh, but they did. And they died so much worse than mere physical death. They died spiritually. And that's why they needed the gospel. That's why they needed the words of life. That's why God had to save them. And that's why we all have to be saved. Because in their eating, we did eat. And in their dying, we all do die. I will die. Everyone who hears this will die. The only people who will not die, who will, will have a form of death, which is a very different kind of dying, who in, the moment, in, a, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, shall be changed. And that, of course, is when Christ returns to do what? Judge the living and the dead. To judge all things. I alluded to the restitution of all things. That only happens through this judgment process. This is the final judgment. This is when Jesus returns with all of his power and all of his glory. All of the dead are raised. All of those who are living are changed. The living in Christ are changed in that twinkling of an eye. And all of the dead, the unrighteous dead, also rise. And that's where we see the great white throne judgments. If you believe that that's not the judgment of rewards and works, I know there's controversy over, oh, who gets rewarded? Well, certainly we're not talking about that yet. What we're talking about is that judgment in which before you're judged for your own works, you're judged on whether you have any works to even be considered. Your standing, your justification or lack thereof. Was Christ raised for your justification? At this judgment, you'll know because he stands in your stead. He enables you to stand. As it were, Christian, he holds you up because who can stand before the Lord? Who can stand before our own judge, Christ himself, who is the judge, the great judge at the end? He comes and judges, and, and yet he took our judgment. And so in that moment when we should be judged for all of our sins and for being conceived in sin, right, shapen in iniquity, well, he's already paid that penalty, and that's why we stand. He's already undone that sinful birth and given us a sinless new birth. Not that we don't sin, but we'll never sin again when we're united to him fully and finally, when we're brought even before that in the intermediate state, when our soul goes to him, your soul's not going to sin. Your soul will never sin in heaven. That's the end of sin for your soul. And then you receive a glorified body like Jesus's glorified human body. And in that body, you will not sin either. And then you're back together. You're that living soul. You're that now perfected and made perfect, holy, righteous, righteous in truth, holy in truth, perfect in truth, made that way out of that clay, out of that clay and united to that soul that's also been perfected. And now... If you'll pardon an expression, now you're really living. 
because this is what our life anticipates, this great restitution of our own fall and death. We fell. We died spiritually. We've been made alive, those of you who are believers, you've been made alive, but it's that regeneration that inexorably, inevitably, that has to result in your glorification. Your justification not only guarantees your sanctification. So you being declared righteous in Christ and being given his righteousness as if it were your own personal righteousness does not only secure that you will seek and strive and fight against sin and try to live a righteous life, but that you will be glorified. And what is that but a resurrection? What is that but your own resurrection? First, in your spirit here on earth when you're saved, but then your body, your body which was planted in the ground. Many of our forefathers melted away into nothing over eons of time, and yet their body will be reconstituted, glorified, made perfect, united to their soul which has been waiting those same eons of time in the intermediate state, and they are truly resurrected because of course christ never died as to his divinity god can't die he's life himself it's his humanity it's his perfect human nature that died and that's what was risen that's what we proclaim not one week of the year not one day of the year 52 weeks of the year 365 days of the year. The Christian witness, the Christian life is resurrection life. It's living in the power of the resurrection because of he who is the resurrection. He who is the life. He who calls us forth as dead Lazaruses from the tomb after we stank, after we saw corruption and decay that he never saw because he lived that perfect sinless life. He calls us forth and he, as it were, removes our grave clothes and not only gives us a a new and glorious body, but he clothes us in his own king, kingly and priestly and prophetic robes of righteousness. This is the picture of what happens. This is the picture of what you and I not only have to look forward to and not only have to live as our own personal hope, but it's the hope that we give the lost and dying world. Not only that they'll be found, but that they'll be made alive. And not only that they'll be made alive, but living they shall live. The complete reversal and undoing of the curse we just heard about, friends. Dying ye shall die, living ye shall live, because you're in the life, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and he gives you everlasting life when you come to him. And that's my prayer for everyone who listens to this, that all of you will come to him, and that all of you have, who have already come to him will reconsecrate, will rededicate yourself, will, will take upon yourself this need to share that life with others. Because if we're not defending a living faith, 
then we could be in the extremely unenviable position of defending a dying faith. And the Lord Jesus Christ knows nothing of the power of death because he's broken it. He has defeated death. And at the end, that's the last enemy that will be put under his feet. This was Apologetics.com. I love you all in the Lord. Thank you.